uh, it's a beautiful day outside. I really do not understand what you're doing here. Um, and, and my source of trepidation is even double and tripled. Um, because as, as you've just heard, I, I am, I should give you as a short preface. I mean, just to understand my academic training and background. I'm trained in the history of political thought and Jewish history, which is to say I am not a historian of uh, South Asian studies, and therefore you will understand my, my source of trepidation to coming to such a distinguished forum as this, and you should accuse me of uh, you know, a typical Jewish chutzpah, uh, which is uh, the term used in my flock for rudeness, for uh, overconfidence, uh, for making for his way, way, way beyond my field, um, but uh, I hope you will uh, um, uh, forgive me for doing this, and, and without alibi, I now will do the chutzpah thing and, and jump right in. <clears throat> um, Walter Benjamin believed that a good historical materialist, uh, unlike 19th century positivist, should always try and brush history against the grain. I am uh, far from being a historical materialist myself, uh, but I would nevertheless like to start our story at the end, and I would like to do so by examining uh, carefully a material object, a photo, reproduced uh, before you here. I hope you can see the slide. The photo was taken in New Delhi in late March or early uh, April 1947, short time before the climatic events that we uh, now uh, call the partition of India took place uh, less than three months before India declared independence. It was 13 months, a bit more than a year before uh, a new nation state named Israel was proclaimed in the Middle East, but, but uh, only uh, less than six months before the UN uh, um, 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 took, voted in favor of partitioning <coughs> Palestine and the hostilities that we now uh, uh, call, the Israelis will call the beginning of the War of Independence, the Palestinians will call the Nakba, had uh, begun. Now, who's who in the photo? I assume that I do not need to introduce here uh, uh, Nehru, right? The Prime Minister of the Provisional uh, Government that was preparing India for the independence. On Nehru's right, our left, you can see Shmuel Hugo Bergman, a German-speaking um, Jewish philosopher, Zionist activist, originally from Prague, uh, classmate and, fr and, and friend with Franz Kafka, who immigrated to Palestine in 1920, was a professor of philosophy in my alma mater, the Hebrew University. On Nehru's other side, you will see, wearing glasses, you will see Davida Cohen, who became one of the founders of the Israeli Foreign Office. Now, uh, Bergman, if you would like, was primarily busy in introducing Kantian philosophy to uh, his students at the Hebrew University. On his spare time after work, he was a member of the Brit Shalom uh, Association, a very tiny uh, yet a vocal group of uh, predominantly German-speaking uh, uh, professor from the Hebrew University that were uh, advocating for a binational Jewish-Arab state in Palestine. Um, 
a boring bureaucrat as maybe Hakoin may seem to you, he actually had a very exciting 1940s. He spent it uh, first, he was in charge of the secret negotiations and coordinations between the Haganah, that was the paramilitary force in the Yeshuv, and the SOE, the Special Operation Executive. That was the British Army organization in charge of conducting espionage and sabotage in occupied Europe and then later on also in occupied Southeast Asia against the Axis powers and also aiding like, local resistant movements. Actually, it was from Hakoen's private flat in Haifa that uh, Radio uh, France Libre broadcasts were aired into occupied Syria and Lebanon that were under Vichy. And later, when the relationship between the British Empire and uh, um, between the British and the Yeshuv went sour, he was one of the first ones to be arrested in Operation Agatha went, that went down in Zionist histori historiography as Black Sabbath, that was an attempt to crush um, Jewish anti colonial resistance. Um, so, what brings these two gentlemen to India? The answer might seem banal. Bergman was appointed leader of the 10-member delegation from Palestine representing uh, the Jews, the Yeshuv, the, uh, the Jewish population in Palestine at the Asian Relations Conference hosted by Nehru. And the idea behind the conference was uh, simple and no, it was how to bring together leading men of women from Asia on a common platform to study the problems of common concern of the people of the continent, to focus attention on the social, economic, cultural problems of the different countries of Asia, and that was the official proclamation. Now, the setting... The stage for the meeting was also very carefully planned. It was a took place, the conference took place at the 16th century stone fort of Purana Kila. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. And so see what's happening here. As Asia's future is to be discussed on purpose in an ancient fort built by a Mughal emperor not too far from the Viceroy's uh, house that was built, of course, later by the British over on a hill uh, nearby, um, and a narrow uh, man. I mean, was the the location was chosen carefully, not without reason. Nero started his uh, speech saying that standing on this watershed which divides two epochs of human history, uh, we, can uh, we can look back at our long past and look forward to a future. Asia, after a long period of coincidence, has suddenly become important again in world affairs. So clouds of an approaching storms did start to gather. As the delegates were arriving, Gina announced that the conference would be boycotted by the Muslim League, but this did not ruin the celebratory mood and in fact only strengthened the impression that the conference, as a British observer described it, was the visible, dramatic evidence of the awakening of a continent of India's significant and contribution to it. So, if, and, and others, of course, were much more new, less nuanced for them. The conference was nothing but a display of bitter anti-imperialist sentiment. It was empty rhetoric of solidarity that covered up what was actually a disharmony. Now, from the reports we do have, it seems that, unsurprisingly, the conference indeed was very Indocentric, and that in general, the delegates from the Middle East that were uh, thinly represented in any event were content to play a comparatively minor role in the conference. In that sense, the Jewish delegates from Palestine stood out. 
They made a good impression, the same British source uh, re uh, con uh, reported, by their contribution to the talks on agricultural reconstruction, etc. In other words, the Jewish representatives spoke the language of modernization, but they also spoke it in a way that connected so well with the staging of the entire event, the new technologies that will allow the ancient past to be reconnected uh, in a new way to the future, like in Palestine, the same classic Zionist oxymoron, Altneuland. Let's take an old land and turn it into a new land at the very same time. And since the uh, 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 choreography of the event was so carefully planned out, I think that the sartorial choices should also be scrutinized. Let's look back at this photo and let us speculate. Did the Jewish delegates blend or stand out in their crowd? I use the word gentleman when describing them on purpose, but look at their formal, heavy European suits, the respectable diplomatic attire, one would assume uh, was the dress code proper for such occasions, but it stood in bleak contrast with the, for instance, Nehru's outfit, right, with his trademark Akan, the knee-length uh, coat buttoned in the front, and the uh, and, uh, common man uh, cap, and the idea that your politics is displayed through your outfit is, of course, clear to anyone that is familiar with Gandhi. It was part of the move to display, to, to use, uh, uh, to, to shed yourself off of the Western closing. And this is Gandhi at, uh, speaking at the same, at the closing planetary, of, uh, uh, plenary session of the same conference itself. So I would like to dwell on this vagueness and still very much uh, open-ended and, if you might, um, contradicting uh, presence of a Jew and of the Jewish national project vis-a-vis -vis this moment of the so what is seen as the renaissance of post-colonial Asia. And this leads me to the, to the questions I want to pose here today. Were these Jews seen as Eastern people, a non-European minority, seeking to revive Semitic ancient past, or European settler colonials who were serving the interests of Western empires? Were these Jewish nationalists learning the lessons of India and following its footsteps, trying to cure themselves of the illnesses imposed on them by the West? Or were these Jewish nationalists, of the, uh, nationalists of the European kind imitating and critically forms of linguistic and territorial excessive nationalism that they were exposed to in Western and Central Europe, the same pathological nationalism that paradoxically and horrifically the Jews themselves were uh, its prime victims. So indeed, the very framing of these questions in such binary terms is part of the problem I want us to address here. Because I think that what is so problematic is that this, the mode of thinking that we are imposing on these periods is one that lost patience with the blurred, fuzzy, indecisive image of the Jew that still predominantly was there up to the moment of post-colonial independence. And similarly, you won't be surprised to hear, nation states had no patience to fuzzy identities. And if you would like, we started with the end of the affair. As far as diplomatic history goes, the story is well known. When the UN General Assembly brought the Palestine Partition Plan to vote in November 29, 1947, India voted decisively against it. 
Nehru was particularly outspoken, full of anger and contempt at the way the UN vote has been lined up, and was clearly thinking what would be the implications of such a vote on uh, if the resolution will be approved on, on India. Look at the title of this uh, uh, English newspaper taking, uh, that was published in Palestine and compare it with, those of you who can read Hebrew, with the Hebrew titles. The Hebrew press chose a dif- different words to describe the same event. The Hebrew headlines did not say partition approved or something dry as resolution 181 accepted, but the UN veto- voted in favor of a Jewish state, or in, one, in this slide you can say it, a Medina Ivrit, a Hebrew state. Now, Neither newspaper was telling a lie. It simply framed the event in a different way. And this is important because from that moment on, uh, um, India went down in Israeli history as one of those 13 countries who betrayed us um, as the ones that voted against uh, a Jewish state. And Nehru, whose government officially recognized Israel only in September 1950, and even after that, did not go and pursue full diplomatic relations uh, with it, was certainly no longer considered a friend. If you don't trust me, by the time of Bandung, 1955, the next big power display of post-colonial transcontinental cooperation, it was clear there was no room for a Jewish or Israeli delegate in the room. It was a story of a mutual divorce. Right? The Israeli Foreign Office showed no interest in joining what one European observer called the Union of Proletarian States. And a year later, Israeli troops were marching into Egypt helping the British and the French restore their own Western control over the Suez Canal. So Israelis were, in a way, happy also to be left out of that club that was quickly dubbed the Third World. I I realized uh, only recently that that's a term that was already coined in 1952. It was very early. Um, And over the years, the Israelis were very good at at developing what I like to call their own Eurovision uh, complex, which is a very nice, though somewhat tacky way of imagining yourself as European. And India was pushed aside in Israeli culture, especially in pop culture, uh, to be the exotic other, like you will find in many other countries in the classic patterns of sort of Orientalist imagination. You know, India would be the place of shanti and party, right? The poverty and beauty, the place to search for, for nirvana. You will rarely hear talks in Israel about India as a lively democracy with a progressive constitution that recognizes minority rights. Similarly, it will be easier to present a New Age vision of India as a harmonious cosmos as if it were not a subcontinent ruptured by countless ethnic, religious, and national conflicts, a bit like the region Israel is part of. So this moment of rupture, if you would like, beginning with independence, ending in uh, in the Bandung Conference, opens the questions that really interest me, and they go far beyond the diplomatic history, beyond questions of war and peace. It's the questions of narratives, of self-understanding and mutual perceptions, and the breakdown of a common shared epistemology. For this moment of rupture actually generated the two implausible mythological narratives which we live with, 
to this day. One is told and retold time and again by those who are trying to offer an apologia for the Israeli state. It regards the Jewish nation state not as a mechanism of government, but as an ethical and organic entity that was invoked by the Jewish prophetic message of social justice and the Zionist humanist vision. Well, maybe this was the Israel Martin Buber and Hugo Bergman was, uh, was a- were aiming for, but it's very, very far removed from the reality. And the other n- narrative firmly embedded in the image of Israel as is an outpost of colonialism, nothing but a settler colonial state. Now, both narratives that remind, requires us the, this either-or approach are repeated often, and yet it's impossible to bring either of these foundation stories into full alignment with, uh, with history. So I pose, therefore, a twofold question. First, as professional historians, how can we avoid the dogmaticism of these foundational mythologies and the overdetermined way we tell history as leading to that moment of independence uh, and reintroduce contingency to the stories we tell ourselves? And the second, that is maybe taking us outside pure academia, are what resources Israelis can draw on from their past that would allow them not to fall prey to such myth, that would help us become more imaginative, less parochial. And therefore, you won't be surprised that I'm joining the choir of historians that are now singing Go Transnational, challenging the hermeneutic superiority of the nation-state Transnational history, as I see it, seeks to reveal these long-term relations and and reconstruct the superlocal power relations. And here, uh, uh, restoring the time India and Palestine were still seen as part of the same historical story is crucial. So the buzzwords in my stories are connections, analogies, precedents, models, comparisons. And from this point on, I will proceed in the next two steps. First, I would try to uh, uh, distinguish between two types or two levels of analogies and connections that were drawn. One was the analogy as a sort of a research strategy. So this level of discussion is that of historiography of, and, and analytical tools that uh, researchers used when they tried to connect these two different uh, spaces. And this would should be distinguished from the type of analogies we find in the historical sources themselves, when the historical actors see themselves as part of the same, uh, same uh, framework. So let's jump right into it. Crudely put, one can identify two major research strategies that are doing these sort of links. And the first strategy that is specifically refined by post-colonial theoreticians, highlights the relationship between the political dilemmas in separate colonial spaces by tracing the cultural baggage brought by the European colonialists to the two spaces. And the second strategy I will talk about later is, by contrast, we'll identify the analogy at the level of the colonial subject themselves, independently, if you'd like, from the official colonial mind. Amir Mufti's uh, Enlightenment in the Colony, the Jewish question and the crisis of post-colonial culture, provides what perhaps is the best illustration of the strengths as, as well as the weaknesses of the first research strategy. Mufti identifies the bloody conflict between uh, Hindus and Muslims as a colonia- colonial variation on what he defines as the exemplary crisis of minority, a phenomenon also typical of Jewish minority in Europe. According to Mufti, 
we cannot trace the roots of political act of separation and partition without critically reflecting on the dynamics of minoritization that had emerged in the intra-European context and was only subsequently exported to the colonies. <coughs> now, Mufti's tools are taken from the arsenal of comparative literature. He argues that in order to reconstruct the, this type of liberal imagination and colonial mindset, we really need to go on a literary voyage. It's a fantastic voyage. It starts with canonical German Enlightenment texts dealing with the, uh, with the, uh, with the Jews, including Lessing's, uh, Nathan de Wise, and Moses Mendelssohn, Jerusalem, that uh, were published exactly the same year, and Fichte's addresses to the German nations, and it continues into English with uh, George Eliot, Daniel de Ronda, and Ian Forster's passage to India, and actually Nehru's discovery of India. Now, this literary journey, according to Mufti, reveals that the Indian national discourse that developed after 1857 actually adopted the presupposition the European nationalism had about the Jews, projecting them onto India's Muslim community. Through literature, if you like, you find a system of signifiers that was developed, and then it was transformed with the books to the Far East. The system associated Jews with various negati neg negative qualities. They were simultaneously redentist, but also cosmopolitans. They constituted a foreign element, alien to the body of the nation, but they were ref uh, refusing to integrate. And they were all, all ultimately members of a disloyal group. So all these vices, he argued, were later ascribed to India's uh, uh, Muslims. So in other words, Hindu nationalism, Okay, the, is the essence of Hindu nationalism turning Islamic group into a minority and a problem is actually a direct extension of an adoption of the European prejudices about the Jewish other. So all that Indian nationalism basically had to do is to take uh, the Jewish, uh, to, to codify the colonial other as Jewish, the paradigmatic other, and then the marginalization and exclusion uh, was only a matter of time and hence the origin of partition. Now, Mufti's uh, move is thought-provoking and inspiring, but not problem-free. And I won't go into the, in, all the reasons. I think that students of anti-Semitism and Jewish history would hasten to argue that it was much more than one answer that was given to the Jewish question in European thought. And moreover, Mufti stumbles exactly where so many post-colonial writers <coughs> do. He turns the Jew into a trope, devoid of concrete historical uh, reality. There are no Jews in uh, Mufti's book. There's only the Jew. That is the contemporary uh, imaginary Jew of the sporic imagination. It's a synonym with exile and the dialectics of recognition and exclusion. It's a badge, easily attached to any cosmopolitan writer, any stateless refugee, and any persecuted minority member. Moreover, I think that when arguing that the conceptual framework used by the British to describe the Muslim problem, uh, one that defined the Muslim as a community and ultimately led Gina to call the Muslims a nation, was completely an outgrowth of the discourse of European enlightenment about the Jews. In fact, as far as the Jewish-European history goes, 
one can argue it was actually the opposite. The breakup of Jewish communities, the institution of the Kahal or the Kehila, uh, was seen as the essential precondition for the Jews' integration into modern nation states. So students of Jewish history are famous with the, uh, know the famous formula proposed in 1789. We must refuse everything to the Jews as a nation and accord everything to the Jews as individuals. And this is, summarizes the European move. The Jew had to be uh, dissociated from the community so that he could be transformed into an enfranchised individual, into a citizen. It is the precise opposite from communalist moves, which threw all Muslims into one basket and forced individuals to see themselves, first and foremost, as part of a religious community. What we have before us, therefore, are two opposing trends. The European nation-state referred to the solution of Jewish question as a process of requiring individualization, that is, the creation of a separate autonomous and uh, social individual that would be later assimilated into a sovereign state. The colonial uh, situation, uh, the trend was the opposite, tagging, refining groups based on parameters imposed on local population as the means of imperialist, uh, uh, with imperialist control at the as the end. And the latter, if you'd like, if you are familiar with Roger Brookbaker's term, so the latter movement is towards groupism, uh, which is the exact opposite. A very different use of analogy can be found in a book I assume I do not need to introduce here, uh, Dr. Faisal Devji's Muslim Zion, Pakistan as a Political Idea. I, uh, if you haven't read it yet, uh, shame on you. Um, <laughs> I will not restate the main arguments here. I just want to highlight the crucial difference in the research strategy between the two books. In this case, the analogy is not located in the metropole and associated with sort of an imperial or colonial epistemology, a colonial mindset. Analogy now is located, if you'd like, in the grassroots level. In the political views, tacit assumptions, and general worldview of the nationalist leaders speaking on behalf of the colonial subject. Now, like in Mufti's uh, book, here too the Muslim is identified with the Jew. But in, the, in Devji's book, the case of the analogy is located at the level of the local Muslim actors, not the colonial clerks, and they developed it in attempt to achieve the opposite political goal, not to minoritize and ultimately exclude Muslims from, uh, due to their difference, but to highlight the Muslims' uniqueness and exceptionality in a positive sense. The growth of what we can call anachronistically Pakistani nationalism out of a distinct, uh, distinctly religious seedbed is based on a series of conscious comparisons with the Jews and even with uh, Zionism. This type of thinking is encapsulated in the interview uh, given by President Muhammad Zia al huq to the British economist in the 1980s. Pakistan is like Israel, an ideological state. Take out Judaism from, uh, from Israel and it will fall like a house of cards. Take Islam out of Pakistan and make it a secular state, it would collapse. So look at what, so look at what we actually have here. 
What makes the Jewish and the Pakistani nationalism surprisingly similar is not that they uh, emulated European national movements mechanically or blindly. On the contrary, the fathers of the Pakistani nation rejected the twisted blood and soil logic of Central European ethno-nationalism and never accepted the idea that a nation could or should be grounded in territorial and biological foundations. On the contrary, the act of national self-definition had been conceived in religious and cultural terms by emphasizing difference in language, historical heritage, belief system. And only later, as a second step, it was re- would be reimagined in ethnic, geographic, and political terms. Now, second, and I think this is not less uh, crucial, one of the refreshing innovations I found in this kind of history of idea is the way it refutes conventional assumptions regarding the original intentions of these national leaders. These actors were not thinking nation-state. They were not aiming for what happened in post-war years, independence that met up sovereign nation-state that are completely divorced from the British Commonwealth, that are creating huge armies and nuclear capabilities. Devjiz insists that it would be erroneous to measure the intentions of the fathers of the Pakistani nation by the outcomes of their acts. And I would suggest that the same is true of many of Israel's so-called founding fathers as well. It is rather a story of two pariah nationalisms that are the exceptions to the rule of uh, other national movements in the uh, um, 20th century. Now, I do not know how well versed my audience is in the history of Zionism. I assume that most of you have heard of Theodor Herzl, uh, Jabotinsky, Chaim Weizmann, probably also David Ben-Gurion. I assume not many of you have heard of the German Zionist Max Budenheimer. You can see him on the slide here. Because he had a good reason. He's not that important. It was not that influential. So why am I bothering telling you about him? Because Budenheimer proudly announced in the first Zionist Congress in Basel in 1897 that the Jewish nation's loftiest expression is the formation of a Staat, state. And guess what? No one listened to him or took him too seriously. Regarding themselves as proponents of nationalism persecuted minority group, most of the leaders of the Zionist movement were slow to accept exactly this type of Central European concept of a state that people like Bodenheimer offered them. Even Herzl, I would argue, though talking explicitly about the Judenstadt, Jewish state in 1896, was not imagining the type of nation state that post-1945 decolonization would bring to the world state. It was a state developing under the auspices of European superpowers and one that relied on it financially, culturally, uh, technologically. And that was also the essence of what we call Herzl's charterism, that to be legitimate in the eyes of the nations, Zionism had to obtain a formal charter, first from the Ottoman Sultan, then uh, when Turkey was not responsive, European powers. And if you would like, when Herzl goes to his grave in 1904, a broken man, bitter and disappointed, precisely because he fails to gain such a charter, feeling that the movement will soon disintegrate. 
Not coincidentally, the Zionist arch- uh, um, activist of the time preferred using ambiguous terms such as Jewish community in Palestine, autonomy, or the far, far more vague nation, national home, which was introduced by the 1917 Balfour Declaration to define their objective as a sta- starting point for any political negotiation. And indeed, Weizmann's huge success in obtaining the Balfour Declaration that turned him into a legendary figure uh, in the Zionist movement and allowed him to present himself as Herzl's hair had to do with that uh, uh, ability to gain the charter. But look at Weizmann himself. He did everything possible to avoid using the S word, state. To talk explicitly about the Jewish nation-state in his presence, one of his aides wrote, was like uttering Hashem HaMiforash, the unmentionable name of God. One had to be more delicate, much more careful, opacity, and intentional ambiguousness stood at the center of this policy. Because who could know what shape and form the Jewish national home would eventually take, and what, ha- if, if at all. So the fluid and vague na- term national home was per- perfect solution for Zionists and the British at the same time. So very briefly, where do we feed, see the first appearances of the world state? I would argue in two main contexts. In, first in the <coughs> late 1920s, when in the context of a now entirely forgotten attempt to terminate the mandate and declare Palestine a dominion, part of the British Commonwealth of Nation, because I will talk about it in a different lecture this Thursday. I will not go into uh, details, but it's crucial that you will understand that the type of state that is imagined here, like imagine a small, uh, the, Jew, the Israeli flag with a small Union Jack at the side, is again part of the Commonwealth of, of Nation. The next time the word state appears is in the context of the 1937 partition plan, and here again, let us avoid anachronisms. Unlike partition that actually took place a decade later in 1947, Lord Peel's partition plan was not about creating independent state that would be torn off the empire. It was separation of Jews and Arabs with continuation of Br- British presence in a quasi-federal format. So speaking of analogies and precedents, the Peel Commission report explicitly cited the separation of Sindh from Bombay and of Burma from the Indian Empire as precedents for Palestine. Now, I will run through it quite quickly because I just put together a few examples of these Zionist attempts to think national politics without a nation state. And, And I would argue this is not peripheral effort, even in someone so central as Dr. Chaim Lazarov, a wunderkind of the Jewish agency's political department. If you would like someone who acted as the unofficial foreign minister of the movement, you will find it. Despite his avowed secularism, he was a socialist. This Jewish nationalism arising from his writing is often grounded in the assumption very similar to the one that we just heard that we, uh, we saw in the early Pakistani nationalists. Nationalist. The Jewish national movement is what you, call, uh, you may call hungry nationalism. He writes it in 1927, the 10th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. It has nothing to do with the nationalities of all sorts of kinds of chauvinism, imperialism uh, that tag along with the national idea. There is absolutely no relation between the Hebrew nationalism and some kind of authoritative nationalism. 
as the nationalism of an oppressed and persecuted minority, Zionism for him is distinctly different from nationalism of most of the people who won independence after World War I with the collapse of the Ottoman, Russian, and Austro-Hungarian empires. So put differently, for Lazarov, Zionism represented a non-state nationalism rather than full independence flag nationalism. Now, it did not contradict his strong belief in settler colonialism. On the contrary, and this is where I continue the quote, the Jewish national movement designed to build the land of Israel is objectively in a fundamentally different situation than that of the national movements of all other peoples, since it could not have achieved its objective by way of political revolution or an act of declaration, but only by a prolonged settlement project. Now, Arlazaro was not mentioning acts of declarations for no reason. In politics, declarations and the meaning of words matter. Students of Indian history, I'm sure, would agree with me that Gandhi's term Swaraj can be translated as self-governance or self-rule or as independence, and the, and the translator's choice is very crucial in understanding what Gandhi meant. I would argue that the same exactly applies to the Hebrew word atzma'ut. Now, it is crucial to note for the non-Hebrew speakers in the crowd, this is a modern word. It's a neologism. It was invented during the mandatory period. It's not something you will find neither in the Bible nor in the ancient rabbinical text. In fact, we actually know precisely who invented it. It was coined by the journalist and the revisionist sympathizer Itamar Benavi, son of the famous linguist, uh, linguist Eliezer Ben Yehuda, who is considered the father, uh, the, the person to revive, so to speak, Hebrew in the modern world. Now, 99% of the Hebrew speakers today would argue that it will use atzma'ut as simply the Hebrew term for independence. Yet atzma'ut, as Benavi explains in his memoirs, in so many words, was originally coined by him when he was looking for the Hebrew term for the Latin autonomia, autonomy. Independence, he explained, has a perfectly good kosher Hebrew word, e-tlut, which would literally mean not dependent. You do not need a new word for independence. So why is it crucial? Because the type of Atzma'ut people like Ben Avi were thinking of has nothing to do with declarations of independence we see post-1945, but is entirely compatible with the continuation of life under the auspices of the British Empire and a dominion status. In fact, these dilemmas and questions arise in Palestine at precisely the same time. The idea of dominion conquers the imagination of Gandhi and people close to him. And in a famous speech that Gandhi would give in late 1930 at the Indian Round Table Conference, he demanded that the British would turn the Raj into a dominion. And that was the meaning of national emancipation at that stage, because it would have transformed millions of Indians into citizens. Thus Gandhi announced, I quote, Many years ago I stopped calling myself a British subject. I would far rather be called rebel than a subject, but I still aspire to be a citizen, not of an empire, but of a commonwealth in partnership. Zionist activists like Ben Avi were following these debates very closely. In fact, 
it won't be surprising to hear that the same Benavi would rush to London to meet with Gandhi and ask him for an exclusive interview for his daily Doha Yom. Um, and the title takes us back to the photo with which I started this lecture. Thus told me Gandhi, the Hebrew title reads, Time has come for the Eastern nations to become the leaders of culture. I am glad that the Jews are part of this revival of Asia. Dominionization was attractive, therefore, in both cases at the same time. It was regarded as a very elegant federal imperialist solution, full citizenship, self-rule, without full independence. Although it ultimately failed the search for this kind of flexible political framework, allowing separate national identity that would not undermine the imperial superstructure, uh, the, uh, and at the same time would allow these national movements not to adopt central European nation state models is actually much more than a historical curiosity. And it was in this context that the language of shared Eastern revival of Jews and Hindus developed and reached new heights. Let me pause for a second and jump back to Jewish history because in a sense... Thinking about East and West is the least surprising development one can think of when he's familiar with modern Jewish history. After all, the Zionists themselves were not sure whether their movement signifies the Jewish entry into a club of respectable modern civilized Western nations, or was it a project reconnecting with a primordial Semitic and Eastern past, because in a way they reflected some of the internal Schisms cutting through the modern Jewish society. Not only the one between Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews, but also, of course, the famous uh, uh, split between the so-called Vestudent, the highly uh, acculturated, uh, predominantly German Jews, and the East European, Yiddish-speaking masses, the Ostjuden, who were dismissed as uncivilized, but at the same time more authentic. And it's, you know, there's this famous saying that, that when Herzl writes in his diaries that he met with the Russian Jews, he simply writes, I met Caliban. Right? He's a good reader of Shakespeare. And then he realized that Caliban is the true force behind his movement. And the famous avant-garde journals like Ost und West, East and West, in which young Martin Buber and others would publish their early articles, is precisely dealing with these sort of questions. Remember Shmuel Hugo Bergman, with whom I, we, we started this conversation, uh, the Zionist organization, Student Association Balkochva, he was part of in, in, in Prague, was exactly dealing with these, these two type of questions of East and West. And promoting, uh, uh, I'm not saying that they're thinking about the Far East, they're thinking about the different East, but it's not surprising that veterans of these sort of associations that came with a very highbro intellectual approach to Zionism, uh, that distanced themselves from crude political Zionism, were later on the key members of Brit Shalom movement. People like Bergman, Robert Welch and his cousin Felix, the historian Hans Kohn, and other Illuminati that we will find later, reappearing 20 years later in, in Palestine, thinking binationalism and thinking federalism. So in, if you want, in a sense, the question of whether Zionism were Eastern or Western also draws on deep intra-Jewish roots that are predating uh, uh, British mandatory period. 
And it is not coincident that so uh, many of these uh, actors will make their reappearance. And uh, due to brevity of time, I will not go into more details. I can leave it to the question of answer. People like Martin Buber is, of course, one of them. And we're familiar with the famous exchange he had with Gandhi. But also people, the lesser known members like Rabbi Binyamin that were really thinking and talking explicitly about panshemiut, pan-Semitism, and talking about an Eastern revival that actually Zionism should be part of. And during the 1930s, we'll see even curious phenomena like this, the first pilgrimages to, uh, to India. Uh, if you would like the lady to be, uh, that well deserves the, 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 uh, uh, the title, the first Tarmilait, uh, uh, or if you'd like the first Hebrew backpacker to India, which is a very uh, 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 you know, popular phenomenon nowadays, is uh, Shlomit uh, Flam, an idealist, Zionist, who be really believes that Zionism is all about bridging the East and West, and she would go to uh, and would meet with Rabindranath Tagore and will live in his ashram, translate his writings into Hebrew. I have a good friend that is living to this day in Tagore Street in Tel Aviv, which is again a bit of an indicative of the, this type of discourse and image that you had. So it's a, a people that were drawn to India as a civilization that allows you to talk about um, um, nationalism without falling into the nationalism of the West. And they were translating into Hebrew exactly Tagore's writings in which he defined Western nationalism, this is uh, Tagore, as a cruel epidemic of evil that is sweeping over the human world of the present age, eating into its moral vitality. So there, it's a, a, a nationalism which is a non-nationalism, and I will leave on the floor of the edit, you know, on, uh, uh, I left on the on the floor of the editing room the longer discussion about uh, this very curious figure, Herman Kallenblach, that we know was a very close friend of the Mohandas Gandhi, and with him in the Tolstoy farm that they built together in South Africa, where is where the first buds of Gandhi's famous doctrine of Satagraya were uh, insistent on truth began to, uh, to sprout. Let's go back to our Central European figures for the last few minutes. So I do not want to, uh, to give you the feeling that, that uh, the only reference in India had to do with this kind of image of India as a source of spirituality, theology, and attempt to avoid Western politics. They were uh, really thinking politics by comparing them to political arrangement taking place in India at the same time. Look at the chief Fotenu, our aspiration, the monthly published by Brit Shalom. You see long, lively discussions on a variety of alternatives to the nation state are almost always federalist. Um, if you would like uh, look at the issue 1927, uh, you find a very problematic essay by Hans Kohn, who considered the Muslim-Hindu contract, by which he was pro probably referring to the 1925 Commonwealth of India bill, as a good model for Palestine's political future. The locus of political power in such case would be shifted from the central government to the municipalities, which would act as autonomous center with a national character, as used to be the case, Hans Kohn, of course, adds before World War I in Bukovina and Moravia. So these people are constantly comparing Palestine, Central Europe, and the Far East. And the similarities between this non-state scheme as a bottom-up politics and citizenship proposed by Khan and Gandhi's village Swaraj, self-rule, is not, I think, uh, coincidental. Um, 
And in the spring of 1931, the same Brit Shalom journal would closely study the proposal of Muhammad Roshan Akhtar, an Indian Muslim Oxford graduate who arrived to Palestine to serve as the editor of the English edition of Palestine, the most important Arabic newspaper in Mandate, Palestine. Akhtar called for an Arab federation with autonomy for Jews, a kind of, I quote, United States of Arabia, much like now we think of a United States of India. In this case, the search for a federal system modeled on India was supposed to provide the basis for a Jewish-Arab uh, dialogue. So again, similar ideas, decentralized, of autonom uh, decentralized government, autonomous national groups, bottom-up politics with minimal intervention, a central government. Um, now, World War II, and I'm reaching my end, uh, changed many of these dynamics. Uh, but even when you see the turn to a more bold anti-imperial rhetoric, this did not stop Zionists from continuing looking at the, uh, um, putting their hand on the uh, finger on the pulse on the developments in India. At this slim volume, for instance, a 1943 Hebrew translation of Nehru's prison letters can tell you. So it was still not an strange external gaze upon India. It was still, if you'd like, an empathic look people searching for the same struggle, same love-hate relationship with the British. And this is where I reach, uh, uh, I would like to, to, to come to a conclusion. Um, all I could do in, in this talk here is so throw some example of the way that constant comparisons were made and the way that which the pre-stated Zionism was still understood both by South Asian nationalists and the Jewish na nationalists themselves as parallel project that was taking to the one taking place in India. I will argue that reconstructing this analogical point of view will force us to discard outdated truism and refine our understanding of the roots of statehood and partition at the same time. Much of this story, uh, much of, uh, of it is a story of those theories that were never put into practice. The road's not taken, or if one, my, one of my students called it less politely, a history written by sipping through the garbage bin of history. Um, indeed, no, uh, with no empire around, these various federalist vision and imperial concepts of citizenship found in both places prior to 1947-8 simply melted into thin air. Much focus, we focus much of our attention on the emergence of anti-colonial rhetoric and we quite too quickly with the idea of a nation state that emerged out of the debris of the British Empire and we forgot how fluid the meanings of freedom, independence, liberation and citizenship actually, actually were. I would add to it, the fluidity of the meaning of the Jew was still there and it disappeared after World War II as well. We have yet to develop a diplomatic and intellectual history sensitive to this ambiguity of the core concept of interwar politics, one that would provide a rich description of the political masquerade in both imperial and local national leaders. It's a very fine dance uh, that uh, these local national leaders uh, are dancing. In the paranoid Israeli-Palestinian and Indian-Pakistani political discourse of our time, a conceptual history, if you know, a begrifgeschichte of this kind, reconstructing this language, is typically seen as subversive. Remember the photo with which we started our voyage. 
So what were Hugo Bergman and Davida Cohen thinking when coming to the almost independent, still not partitioned India of spring 1947? Was Bergman thinking of his youth as a student in Prague negotiating East and West and about the need to devise a federal solution to the Palestine deadlock to avoid partition a nation state? Was a Cohen thinking that in Nehru he might find a comrade in arms for he too was arrested by, by the British authorities? These questions await further research. Thank you. <laughs>